sailor. The year is 1907. He's just finished swabbing the deck, resting up against his mop. He takes a whiff of that salty air. Seagulls fly overhead. The sailor's been out to sea for months, and what a beauty to behold as Grays Harbor and Aberdeen, Washington come into view. On one side of the Chehalis River, he saw four canneries resting on the banks. On the other side was a splattering of lumber mills processing those old-growth beauties, cedar, spruce, and fir. And the sailor noticed something else as he landed in what was then the largest port in the world. The town was teeming with people. Thousands of sailors like him, far-flung men from all over the world, and loggers. His eyes could barely grasp the number of what looked to be like mountain men, still wearing their specialty boots that chewed through the wooden sidewalks. After months in the wilderness, with pay in their pockets to quench their desires, that were available in abundance at the many saloons, gambling halls, and brothels, anything was available for a price. But this sailor's first stop was the Sailor's Union and a man named Billy Gould. Billy was short and stocky, with a shaved head, a barreled chest, and a wide smile. He was known as a sailor's sailor. He had done the hard, often thankless work that was a sailor's life and had the tattoos to prove it. A sailor arriving at the Sailors' Union expected to get paid, and Billy was only too glad to oblige, counting out the bills for their months of toiling with an easy smile, charming bravado. That day, as the sailor scooped up the cash fresh off the boat, he thought he was in the company of a friend, not knowing the monster behind the mask. He was a power man. The more power he could get, the better he felt. Once he had paid the sailor, then he began to woo him. Come into my office, he'd say. I'll protect your hard-earned wages and any other valuables you might have. There's so many thieves about. And like a moth to a flame, the sailor followed Billy into his office. Billy asked the sailor to crouch down just there. The safe had been strategically placed where Ghoul's victim would be the most vulnerable. Not only did he kill them, but he was also alleged to have tied weights around their bodies and your body would float out to sea. These poor souls never even saw it coming, and they became known as the Floater Fleet. Billy was a notorious character. He was alleged to have killed as many as 200 people. How much of that is fact and how much is fiction? I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. The floater fleet. Oh my <laughs> gosh, doesn't that just paint a picture? I love it. You know, this is I'm sorry, folks, this is going to be a long one because it's got <laughs> so much historical detail and just it's such a crazy story. It's actually become more of like a legend. We don't know what's fact and what's fiction. But I want to start off, though, Kim, one of our amazing listeners messaged us on Facebook the other day and was like, we love your show, which, of course, 
we love, we love to, we love hear. to hear. <laughs> We're Thank not above you. it. Thank you. Um, and we love it when you guys reach out to us with your story ideas and um, that you'd like us to cover. And it's really cool if you can give us a review on iTunes. But I always like to ask what their favorite episode was so far. And she told me it was The Mad Doctor of South Hill. That's Kim's episode. Oh, another historical and, one. Yes. And what's cool is that she said that the reason why she loved it so much was because it reminded her of how similar it was in 1918 when that story takes place in the midst of the flu pandemic and back then and and how even though it's been a century in many ways we are you know acting exactly like what we did back then and so this case it has a lot of similarities going on between back in the early 1900s and America today and i just have to say the floater fleet is one of those that really struck me because i don't know if you've heard the stories about the feet that show up on the Washington coast. But this, I is, have it. this is like a modern day floater fleet. Oh. So since August of 2007, at least 20 detached human feet have been found on the coast of the Salish Sea in between British Columbia, Canada and the Seattle area. It all started in 2007 when the first feet were found. And then just over the years, every now and then, a foot will appear. And nobody could figure out where they were coming from. There were rumors there was a serial killer on the loose that was cutting up the bodies. And yeah, and feet were... I mean, this freaked people out. In 2017, there was a coroner in Canada who said he finally figured out what was happening What they believe was happening is that people who were either killed by accident or by suicide somehow wound up in the water. And then through the natural decomposition process, the feet detached from the body. Is that real? And because they would be wearing shoes, the shoes would make the feet float and they would then wash up on the shore. The rest of the body, which didn't have shoes, didn't float and was eaten by, you know, creatures in the ocean. But because the feet were kind of protected, they would they would float up and come to shore. And so that's why we've been finding all of these feet, according to this coroner. But there are still those who believe there may be a serial killer at play. Yeah. And why in just this one specific area? I, I don't know. And it could be just the way the tides roll. You know, that's that's where things wash <laughs> Yeah, you up. know those I tides, mean, they love to bring in feet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But it's just, again, just another similarity. Yeah, well, we'll have to. Now I'm intrigued. I'm going to have to look more into that. But before I get into Billy, I want to remind listeners what life was like in the in early 1900 America during the Industrial Revolution. Back then, many Americans were hopeful. It was a time of prosperity for the middle class. And although conveniences like electricity, automobiles, and indoor plumbing were not widely available, people felt like they were within grasp. And this was a time when the American rags to riches story or the American dream was really kind of became popular. And the rise of the middle class. Yeah, that's true. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, there was the underbelly there to that growth. It was a time when the working class had few rights or protections. Immigrants to the U.S. didn't have a lot of opportunity for high-paying jobs or education, so they took what they could get, which meant mostly working in the factory or fields in terrible atrocious working conditions. And I don't know if you've read the book, The Jungle, which is Upton Sinclair. See, the the English major's coming out. I had to put it in here. (laughs) Um, And and that was a a book about the life of an an immigrant family and the main character who worked in a meatpacking plant. And if you've ever read that book, you can't believe, like, not only the conditions and how these workers are treated, but unfortunately, back in the day when it came out, people were more outraged 
not at how the workers were treated, but what they put into the meat. And oh. so as I know, I know. Missing the point. Right. But, okay. So, you know, anyway, so again, the U.S. continued to struggle with issues of women's suffrage and civil rights. Billy Gould was one of nearly 500,000 immigrants that came to America looking for a better life in 1900. And for the purposes of this story that I was talking about, the similar economic parallels that can be made, those American industrial tycoons like J.P. Morgan and Andrew Carnegie, you know, they raked in huge fortunes. But at the same time, factory workers, coal miners, children, you know, slaved for these paltry wages and were worked 12 to 16 hours a day. And that's this is the same time when, you know, fury over monopolies was brewing because these tycoons were basically gaming the system. And in fact, the large scale organized labor strike happened in 1900. So keep that in your pocket as we go down the Billy Ghoul rabbit hole. So first, I have to give props to Bill Lindstrom. You might remember that name because he also helped us out with our episode on John Torno, the wild man of the Wainucci. And That's a good one. You got to go yeah. back and listen to that yeah, one if you have Yeah, go back and yet. listen to that. <laughs> Lindstrom worked over 55 years as a newspaper man, mostly as an editor for many years at the Aberdeen World. And now uh, Lindstrom is working on a new book about Billy Gould. And he was kind enough to share newspaper clippings, and I also gleaned information on Ghoul from sources like Outlaw Tales of Washington, They Tried to Cut It All, Grace Harbor, Turbulent Years of Greed and Greatness, and On the Harbor. But let's get back to Billy Ghoul. Life for him began in 1873, and he came to America in 1896 looking for a better life. According to Bill, Ghoul went to Alaska first looking to pan for gold, where it's alleged his taste for killing people began. He was a partner in a gold mine up there, but he was alleged to have killed his partner, and some even alleged that he ate him. Ooh. Yeah. So so that's an allegation that hasn't been confirmed, like so many of the allegations against Ghoul. Was their mining claim like out in the middle of nowhere? Was he starving? Was uh, there reason to believe this could be true? I have no idea. But that's I put that in there because it's salacious. But it also shows kind of how it's all over the map that this has become a legend and what he actually did and what he didn't do. The only thing we know for sure was that he was convicted of one count of murder. And yet many believe he killed scores more. But I I don't believe that he killed 200 people. It's possible that he killed 100. And it's quite probable that he killed at least 40. And even if he just killed 40, just that would still make him one of the most prolific <laughs> killers in U.S. history. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's enough. I mean, yeah, it's like all <laughs> over the map here. But, I mean, once you hear about his method and the circumstantial evidence, I mean, it makes a really good case that he had means, motivation, and he was in the place to be able to do it. So take this account of his exploits with a grain of salt. All the disclaimers are out of the way. Let's get back to Billy, who didn't have much luck in Alaska. So he moved on to San Francisco around 1898. He worked as a sailor and hung out with the likes of Shanghai Kelly. Now, if you're like me, you've probably heard the name Shanghai Kelly, but have no idea who he was or why he got that nickname. Now, James Kelly earned his nickname Shanghai Kelly because he kidnapped men and forced them to work on ships. Kim, let's take a moment to talk about this horrendous practice known as crimping or shanghaiing. Shanghai is basically you capture somebody and you make them do what you want. And it's mostly associated with taking them off of a ship, 
putting them on another ship and making them a slave. So I was actually looking up the etymology of the word Shanghai because it is a derogatory term. And so I was kind of curious about how did we get to this point that we're using the name of a city in China to describe a horrific crime of, of kidnapping and enslaving someone. Just before the turn of the century, a lot of times the ships that those young men were forced to work on were headed to Shanghai because that was the main port where vessels from America and other parts of the West were allowed to dock and unload cargo. You couldn't just go to any port in China. And China was a huge trading partner with the West. So the port of Shanghai was one of the largest in the world. But it was often difficult to convince sailors to go there because it was such a rough journey and it was a long journey for them to leave their families. So it was hard for them to find enough sailors to make these trips. And so they would kidnap people and force them onto the ship and basically say, you either work for us on the ship or we won't feed you. And we're out at sea. And you're out of luck. Yeah, I mean, it was a horrible practice. So there was this shortage of sailors. Crimpers got what was literally called blood money. For each man, they could Shanghai, either by conning, intimidation, or violence. And once a hostage on the ship or the quote-unquote new sailor was given a choice, like you said, to either work or starve, on top of that, often his first month's paycheck were paid to the Shanghaier or crimper for his blood money. So he had to pay his own kidnapper. <laughs> Yeah, right. So Shanghai Kelly was so infamous. A movie's been made about his horrendous crimes. And here's a little ditty, Go Climb a Tree by Gaelic Storm, that tells the tale of Shanghai Kelly's most infamous cruelty for blood money. Let me just set this up here. Apparently, Shanghai Kelly set up a birthday bash for himself on a free booze cruise. He wanted to celebrate his birthday, but he also said that he wanted to give a big thank you to all the men he'd worked with over the years, inviting 100 men. And he shanghaied all of them with an open bar of opium-laced whiskey. And the liquor knocked them out, and then he just took them to the ship. Rainwashes down, the night turns gray. All I can do is pray. I feel like I want to be in an Irish bar. In the year of 1849, no money in me pockets. But there's mischief on me mind. It was Jimmy Kelly's birthday. A businessman of high renown. He said he'd host a party. He'd invited half the town. He said we'd all go drinking on a paddle steamer in the bay with barrels full of whiskey. Jimmy didn't have Anyway, you get you It get sounds entirely too cheery for the subject at hand. Oh, yeah. It certainly is. And honestly, I think it's because I've been in quarantine for so long. <laughs> it's like my way of getting an Irish bar in there. Um, <laughs> if you can't go to the Irish bar, you bring the Irish yeah, bar yeah, to you. Yeah, there you go. So many speculate that Billy Gould would later use many of the tactics that he'd learned from Shanghai Kelly in Aberdeen. Kelly used the exact same method, including trap doors, tying anchors around the waist, that Billy Gould eventually did. And here's the guy from San Francisco who got himself named agent for the Sailors Union of the West Coast in San Francisco before he came to Aberdeen. And the way he did it was that he he would go up to the union and say, I know these guys on this ship. They are scabs. I will take care of that for you. That's where his road to debauchery actually began. So the people who would cross the picket line, he said, I'll take care of them, like meaning what? I'll beat them up or I'll <laughs> yeah, murder so them? Yeah, so he's or... basically, yeah. And well, it's, 
hang hang on the phone there okay. because I'll describe more of what he does to these scabs. But basically, scabs were union busters. They were men who were brought in to cross the picket line when the union is trying to basically establish workers' rights and make. I mean, the the conditions upon which sailors and loggers and all the all these folks during this time, you know, is is horrendous. And so when you have the scabs crossing the picket line, his job was to be like, hey, I'm going to go, you know, crux some skulls. And he made a name for himself. It sounds like a mafia situation. Yeah, so much so that he basically gets this great gig as the Siemens Union of the Pacific of Aberdeen or SUP. He's their main guy. And it's during this time, there's this massive expansion of labor unions in the region. And Billy basically found his perfect niche for, quote unquote, helping sailors. He gets to Aberdeen and he gets to choose where he's having this union hall and where he, he picks the perfect place for what he wants to do. It's located on, in Aberdeen Skid Row at the time. The building was on pilings on the banks of the Wishka River. On the first floor of the building was the Grand Saloon. And then on this third floor was a brothel. And that this was the perfect hunting ground for victims for him to prey upon. Billy's office was set up on the second floor and had a prime view of all the shipping coming in and out of Aberdeen. So he was smack in the middle of the booze and the broads. Yeah, and he was just loving life and he loved to go to that saloon and he loved, he was so power hungry. And the SUP was a place where the itinerant sailors could pick up their mail, deposit their valuables in the safe. And Billy became really prominent in the working class because he was doing things which would appear to actually help sailors to, you know, he was a huge, strong union man and getting laborers in good standing with good union jobs. He was seen as a hero to the working man up against the brutal employers who put them in harm's way. You know, there was industrial accidents just from the sawmill where, you know, people lost fingers and hands and arms or drowning after being knocked off a ship by a huge cargo. And he would also go after these union busters. And so Billy's reputation and legend grew very quickly in Aberdeen. And it was clear that he was power hungry and he wanted to use his position to make big moves in his thirst for power and money. He was a potentate. <laughs> he was a powerful man. And they knew it. They, they knew that the, the law enforcement knew he had this power. And he really had it over them because Aberdeen was a shipping port. It was only a shipping port. It was a shipbuilding port. And then there were two others in Hoquiam. And between those three, Aberdeen and the Grace Harbor area became the largest shipbuilding port in the world. Billy had a handle in all of this. So Billy wielded that power in a way that made union members feel supported. But city leaders and business owners felt extremely threatened by what he was doing. He orchestrated strikes that lasted for six months that put 6,000 seamen out of work Hmm. because they would send ships up to Aberdeen with scabs on them. And he would take those scabs and kill them. In one instance, he took four of them out, put them on an island and left them there for the tide to come in and drown them. Another instance, there was a ship called the Fearless. It came into town, and it had a number of union busters. There were about eight of them, and he kidnapped them, Hmm. took about 12 of his own men, and went up, and he kidnapped them. He was alleged to have killed one, and he basically was tried for that and fined. 
Well, he was so powerful that the union, Sailors Union in San Francisco, paid his fine. Just fined for murder. That's incredible that that's the only punishment they could mete out. I mean, was it manslaughter? Was it an accident? Or could it be, you know, could they try to say it was an accident? You know, I don't know the details of exactly what the the case was. I'm sure he tried to, like, mitigate it somehow. But, you know, at the end of the day, somebody died and it was a scab and it was, a you know, kind of a quote-unquote sanctioned murder. And so you have these things going on where, I mean, he probably felt, like, invincible. Like, if I can kill, you know, just leave four scabs on an island, you know, sailors who are just probably, like, don't even want to be in this situation. I mean, who, like, who wants to be in a situation of crossing that picket line unless you have to. You know, I'm not going against unions. I'm just saying, like, you know, there's always two sides of a coin. And he left those guys there as the tide's coming in, the island's going away, and they're screaming, please don't, don't leave us here. And he's just like, see you guys. And then there's these, the, the underbelly murders that at the time no one knew about. As in so many cases with sociopaths, Billy knew how to ingratiate himself with his fellow sailors. He could be your friend, but don't ever cross him. And there were a number of people that did, and they paid for it. So crossing Billy could come in a variety of forms, but the most common was greed, as he greeted those sailors fresh off the boat. The sailors had to come to him to get paid. And when they did, if Billy didn't like you, or you said something bad about him, or you said something bad about the sailors' union, then Billy would just get rid of you. He would first pay you, entice you to put your money in his safe, which he said was far safer than the bank. And when you did that and he closed the safe up, he would knock you over the head or choke you or shoot you or knife you or something. Not only did he kill them, but he was also alleged to have tied weights around their bodies And it would go down the trapdoor into the river and your body would float out to sea. So Billy was intelligent and ruthless and like most serial killers with scores of murders, his hunting grounds were mostly sailors who were single men from out of town with few ties to the community. And this is yet another thing that Billy took advantage of. Who would identify these bodies? Well, Billy Gould did. Hmm. Every time there was a body, the um, police chief would knock on Billy's door and say, we got another floater out here. That's what they actually happened because Wishka River was a tide flat river. The water would fluctuate with the tides. So when the tide would go out, the body would float up. Can't you hear that conversation of Billy saying, well, you better include me in the investigation because I'm the only guy that these guys have. Yeah, you know? he's the only one who knows everybody. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, knowledge is so powerful. I mean, when you're the person who's the first to know if there's someone has died, how they died, where they were found, how they were found, when you get all that information right up front, makes it real easy to craft a story about how that might have happened that, you know, obviously doesn't include you murdering them. Yeah, so he's obviously influencing the investigations on the people that he's killed. But... Within a few years of Billy's arrival in Aberdeen, there were just so many bodies recovered. They were called the Floater Fleet. And it didn't take long for Aberdeen to become known as the Port of Missing Men, which 
wasn't good for business. They started keeping a record of the floaters pulled between 1909 and 1912, and that's where they came up with the number 41, because there were many other bodies before then, but they didn't really start keeping track until they're like, oh, we we have a serial killer here. <laughs> Something's going on. And this is, what, a three or four year period, and they've had over 40 bodies. So we're talking like a body a month. Yeah, and there were many more before that, too. So the city already had a bad reputation for debauchery. In early 1900s, Aberdeen was nicknamed the hellhole of the Pacific because of its legendary skid row that was said to be raw and rowdy and filled with saloons and brothels. Basically, this cottage industry that had, you know, come to cash in on all the men coming into the city. I feel so bad for the people who live in Aberdeen right now because it's (laughs) such a beautiful place. And we know this is not how it is these days. No, but it is a beautiful little community now. Yeah. And it's but it's it's interesting, though, because we call it this little community, but it was like literally the world's not just the state or the country, but the world's largest port. And that just conjures that image and all that that implies with all the bustling and all the people and just it was just a so much going on. And so loggers would love to come into Aberdeen because they would often spend months in the forest. They would come to town and spend all their money on gambling and drink and prostitution. And it was the same for sailors who'd been set out to sea for months on end. Now, you had all these bodies piling up. City leaders were worried about the reputation of their city. And a new chief of police, George Dean, was elected, who had run on a campaign promising to catch the person responsible for the killings. So Billy got on Dean's radar when he was caught in a lie, because there's so much going on in Billy's world. I mean, you know, he's got to mess up between all the bodies and all the jewelry and the money and all the drink dead and the sailors and, and his like love of like talking about how awesome he is when he's drunk. So in his capacity as the leader of the sailors union, so basically like what we were just talking about when there's a body and the police call him and like, hey, who is this? Another floater comes up and he says to Dean, he tells Chief Dean like, yeah, that's Otto Kurtz. But later, police would take a closer look at the watch on the dead man wrist and trace it back to a different man who was last seen going to the sailors union. George Dean had seen a man with this watch on in a bar a few days before that. And he knew the man wasn't Otto Kurtz. He was introduced as a different man, different name. So he found out where he lived. The landlord said he went to go get paid from uh, the sailors union. That was three days ago, and he hasn't come back. And he found out that that man's name was Rudolph Alterman. He also then realized that, okay, Alterman is the dead guy. Billy identifies him as Otto Kurtz. Dean contacts a colleague in Germany and finds out that Otto Kurtz is the maker of the watch. Basically, Billy had seen the watch on the guy's wrist and he didn't take it because it was such an ornate watch that he's like, oh, you know, I can't pawn this because it'll be obvious where it came from. And so he just left it on his wrist. But he had looked at the inscription on the back and thought, oh, this is Otto Kurtz. Yeah. And you don't want to be pawning the watch of somebody with their name on it if you've just killed them. (laughs) Right. But as it turns out, that was the watchmaker's name. Uh Yeah. So (laughs) whoops. (laughs) Whoops. But, you know, Dean was smart 
smart. He didn't arrest Billy because at that moment because he knew he just didn't have enough, right? So he hatched this secret plan with the mayor and some flush business owners who pitched in together $10,000 to secretly investigate Ghoul. With some of that money, they bought the Grand Saloon, which is, uh, you know, Ghoul's watering hole. And he also set up two brothers, the McHughes, to pose as the new owners and bartenders. Billy had a penchant for getting drunk and bragging about his exploits. You know, that was legendary. And Patty McHugh became chummy with Ghoul working as an undercover bartender. Well, Patty and Billy were buddy-buddy at that time. But Dean went a step further and he hired an international detective agency called the Teal Agency, T-H-I-E-L to start doing some investigating into the activity that was going on in Aberdeen. And between McHugh and the Teal Agency and the Otto Kurtz watch, they, they eventually came to a conclusion that Ghoul was responsible for a whole lot more than just, just these floaters. So another thing happened at the same time. As this undercover investigation was taking place, Ghoul ended up killing one of his really good friend, Andy Jacobson's dog. What? Why the dog? I mean, I know he's a terrible person. He's murdering a lot of people, but why the dog? I know there's not a specific reason as to why, but the effect of it was just so horrible for Jacobson. Jacobson was a friend of Billy's. He drank with him. He fished and hunted with him. And he was he was just a regular guy of Billy's. Not one of his henchmen or anything like that. Well, one day, Billy got mad at Jacobson, and he killed his beloved dog and told him that he didn't kill him, and he's just wandered off somewhere. Apparently, Ghoul kicked the dog to death, then callously threw the body under his building into the Wishkaw River. When Andy went looking for his dog, he found his body mm-hmm. and he was just so upset and fed up with Billy that he went straight to Chief Dean and started talking. So one of the things Billy would do with Andy was brag about his exploits. So Andy told the chief two things. First, Billy bragging about setting fires. So apparently Billy had started at least two fires. One of them, he torched the property of one of his enemies by inventing a device that would allow him to trigger an explosion remotely. Billy was so proud of this invention, he actually got a patent for it. Jacobson explains in great detail the patent and the fact that he has bragged about the fact that he could burn the whole town if he wanted to. That was the beginning of the end of Billy Gould. Not only did he burn out the cigar store, but also the hotel that housed the business. So he basically wiped out his competition, and then two people actually died in the fire. When Billy saw the cigar owner after the fire, he's alleged to have said, quote, ain't it funny how things work out, adding, I never dreamed there'd be a bonus in it. You know, he's referring to the fact that he inadvertently killed an enemy in this fire. So it just really shows his, you know, he's just kind of an evil dude, you know? And it took the death of the dog, though, for his friend to turn him in, like his friend was apparently cool with him killing people. But once he killed the dog, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would. you know, I, I supposedly he's been described as like he wasn't one of the henchmen. But, you know, I, I mean, I have no excuse for like that. And then some other weird things that'll come up with some of these other people in the story. But one source says that Jacobson also told Chief Dean a story about another murder that Billy bragged about. And that really kind of showed and it showcased 
Like, this could be the person responsible for all of these deaths. Apparently, it's another sailor visiting the Union, and Billy put on his, you know, dog and pony show about, hey, let me protect your your stuff. And, you know, he put $200 in the safe. Then he callously told the man to go stand by one of the river pilings and wait for an incoming ship. But what he was really doing, Ghoul was waiting till the four o'clock whistle blew from the mill that came like clockwork. And then at the same time, he allegedly shot him in the head from that office window of his. So just waiting for that bell to cover up the sound of the gunfire. Yeah. And you would think people would be like, how did people not know? But it was such a chaotic time. There was like, you know, blacksmiths, you know, pounding on stuff. Sawmills. I mean, those are so loud. (laughs) Yeah. And there's just a lot of activity going on. The town that I live in is an old mill town and they still at noon every day, the lunch whistle blows. And I'm a mile away from where the lunch whistle is. And I still hear it every day at noon. Really? So it's loud. So I can understand where that would, you know, blot out the, the gunfire. Oh I, I don't even want to say what I was thinking. Okay. So uh, anyway. So no, I want to hear it. What were you thinking? I could just you with your window at noon. It's the weirdest thing because people in town. I mean, it's a good thing you're not a murderer. No, people in town really set their watch to it. And, and there was a time where actually. But why do they need to set their watch to it? It's going to go off at noon. Because They'll know. then you know when, you, okay, it's noon. Like, I, I'll be working in the yard and all of a sudden you hear the whistle and you know, oh, shoot, you know, time flew by. I didn't realize it's noon already. It really is something that like tells you what time of day it is. Yeah. And it was actually out for a week or two. And the whole town was talking about what happened to the noon bell. <laughs> You know what? I think you live in a pretty small town, (laughs) right? Okay. (laughs) So the news is tightening on Billy, but he doesn't know it. He's like totally oblivious to it. You've got Andy spilling his guts and Patty is still at the bar listening to every single drunk exploit and then goes and immediately tells the chief. So in one last one of his last drunken confessions, he would would ultimately be the deed that led to Billy's arrest. It's alleged that Billy told Patty that he and two of his buddies, Charles Hadberg and John Hoffman, went to a Finnish immigrant farmer's home. He raped his daughter and then shot some of their cattle. Patty told the chief, who hadn't known about the crimes against the family, the police showed up at the farm and the family's descriptions of the three men matched Ghoul, Charles Hadberg, and John Hoffman. You're going to want to remember those two names, Hadberg and Hoffman. It didn't take long for word to get back to Billy that police had questioned the farmer and his family. So Billy then beelined it to Patty and said, hey, did you rat me out here? What's going on? (laughs) I thought we were besties. Somehow McHugh was able to shift the blame onto Hadberg and Hoffman, saying it was them, not him, who had started talking. So Ghoul, as a result, starts plotting his revenge against these guys. The plan culminated in late December of 1909. And of course, Patty was only too happy to hear as he poured Billy another drink and Billy started describing his plans of killing these two guys. Oh, my gosh. And with the help of another buddy, Klingenberg. Now, this is a really weird part of this story because it's like I don't understand why Billy included Klingenberg in this double homicide plot, right? It seems like he is willy-nilly including people in his criminal activity. Yeah. It's surprising it took this long for somebody to roll over and rat on him. I, 
<laughs> roll over and it just sounds like the mafia. Well, that's roll what over it and rat. I know. There's like. so much going on. I know. So apparently, Ghoul sent for Klingenberg to come to his office and told him he had killed the farmer's cow and that all three had raped the farmer's daughter and the others needed to be killed because he didn't want to go to prison. So it's another point that's kind of surprising about this story is that if it's true that Billy had confided in Patty, why didn't they warn these two that something, you know, imminent, imminent danger was on the way? Unless they were convinced that they would be able to catch him or stop him before he could carry out his plan. I don't think there was any plan in motion to save these guys because, hmm. you know, Billy's like, yeah, I'm going to kill these guys on this date, like in a couple of days. And, you know, to my knowledge, they never went to warn them because four days later, Billy sat down at the bar all smiles and said the deed was done, that Hadberg and Hoffman went away for good and allegedly said, we have landed those fellows. Johnny Klingenberg and I killed Hoffman and Hadberg. We planted the bodies in the waters of Gray's Harbor with anchors for pillows. So McHugh, Patty McHugh, ends up going and, of course, telling Chief Dean to go look for the men's bodies. And they searched the waterways near and far and didn't find anything. But why do you wait until after they're killed That's to what I'm go saying. to police? I know. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. So some of the sense. people, like, I, I just think that, I mean, if I were armchair quarterbacking, it's just the, a life was worth so little back then. I don't know why they didn't. Maybe they thought, you know, these guys were like henchmen and they were, you know, they stole and they did a bunch of stuff. Like maybe they didn't think they were worth warning. I have no idea. Well, the other thing is this is also, you know, legends and tales told third hand. And so it may not be exactly accurate. There's also that possibility. Yeah. But one thing that we do know for sure, on February 1st, the body of Hadberg was discovered in Uh. a local river in the nearby town of Hoquiam. Two days later, Ghoul was arrested. Not too long after the killings, Klingenberg had skipped town, sailing on the Santa Rosalia, headed a- far away from Aberdeen. <laughs> smart yeah, man. That, was... is, that is probably the one and only smart move that has happened in this whole story. I know, but it was too late. He would later say that several times before he left, as he's waiting for the ship, like, hey, can we get going, guys? <laughs> um, <laughs> that Billy would try to get him alone. So Klingenberg feared for his life because obviously he knew first firsthand what happened to Ghoul's friends who knew too much. So the police tracked down that vessel and told them, by whatever means necessary, do not let Klingenberg off the ship and they need to bring him back. And so Klingenberg was happy to be captured by police instead of Billy Gould and immediately confessed to what happened. As soon as he comes back, he starts singing like a canary and he confesses to the whole thing. According to Klingenberg's testimony on December 24th, 1910, Billy asked Hoffman to help remove the sails and do some work on Ghoul's sailboat. So using his gas-powered little skiff-type boat, Billy, Klingenberg, and Hoffman motored away from shore. When they were far enough away from the shore and prying eyes, Ghoul then opened fire and hit Hoffman three times in the back. Hoffman is still alive, begging for his life, crying out in pain, Ghoul is yelling at Klingenberg to tie an anchor to him, and Klingenberg is kind of sitting there in a state of shock. So Billy said, you better take the wheel or I'm going to kill you. So then Ghoul then shot Hoffman in the temple, and then they dropped him in the Chehalis River. So did Klingenberg know when he was headed out on that skiff what the plan was? 
Yeah. I mean, he basically had been told by Ghoul, like, hey, we went to this farmer's place. We shot some cattle. We raped the daughter. So why and they is need he to be- acting that- all surprised? I, I, I know. I guess there's several things in this story that don't quite add up. And that's where it's like there's probably something that's a little different that actually happened. Yeah. Because but- that just doesn't make sense. But – it even I think that what we do know, it still doesn't make sense, right? right? I mean, because, no, I, he's definitely sounds like he was a bad dude who did a lot of criminal activity. I think it's just the details that are sometimes a little fuzzy when you're a hundred years out. Yeah. So Klingenberg didn't shoot Hoffman, but they're not done yet. Oh. So the night wasn't over. The two of them went to Hadberg's. Now he's mm-hmm. the other guy. Now Hadberg lived in a shack on the shores of Indian Creek, and apparently Hoffman and Hadberg were roommates. So when Ghoul and Klingenberg get to Hadberg's, Ghoul's boat got caught in a snare in the middle of the river. And so he calls out to Hadberg, this guy that he's going to kill. <laughs> Come help me <laughs> hey. so I can kill you. <laughs> yeah, the first part of that. Okay. It's like, hey, help us. So then Hadberg helps them onto shore and then even offers for them to sleep in his shack that he shared with Hoffman. Hadberg, of course, had no idea what had happened to his roomie earlier. Hadberg then let Klingenberg sleep in his bed, and Ghoul slept in the bed of the man he had just murdered, and Hadberg slept on the floor. But that didn't matter. You know, this kindness that Hadberg showed toward Ghoul, he still, they still went ahead with the plan. The next morning, they used the same ruse to get Hoffman on that skiff, and when they were out to sea, Ghoul motioned for Klingenberg to shoot Hadberg. You know, that he'd probably said before, if you don't do it, you know, I'm going to kill you. And so Klingenberg ended up shooting him. Well, yeah, because you know that Ghoul means it. Yeah, you know that he does. The the one thing it's like, but but why did Ghoul even need to bring in Klingenberg? That's still never been well, answered. I could I could understand why he would need to do that because if you're if you're driving a ship and also trying to kill someone, that's just a two man job. There's two things that need to happen at the same time. I mean, it's just logistically. <laughs> I know, but he still had his trap door back at the Sailors Union. But maybe the two were smart enough to know, hey, we're not we're not stepping Well, maybe foot the in tides there. weren't working <laughs> yeah. in his favor that day or something. Yeah. OK, so Billy and Klingenberg then tied an anchor around his body and dropped him into a watery grave. Now, Billy swore that Hadberg and Hoffman had went to Alaska and he didn't know whose body the sheriff had found off of Indian Creek tied to an anchor. But what they did is during the trial, they removed a tattoo from Hadberg's arm, which had been pickled, and brought it into the court so jurors could see that <laughs> identifying tattoo. And I don't say, even want to imagine what that looked like. I, I don't. I, do, I can imagine it being super salacious, though. Can't you imagine them like, look, this is our forensics back in the right, early forget, 1900s. Forget DNA. <laughs> Like, yeah. here, it, here it is, in a jar. Yeah. <laughs> DNA in a jar. Yeah. He was convicted of first-degree murder in the murder of Charles Hadberg. He was never tried for the um, murder of John Hoffman, and there was no body. In 1910, he was sentenced to life imprisonment in Walla Walla. In 1923, he was transferred to the Eastern Washington Medical Hospital for the Insane. He had gone insane and was suffering from syphilis. Four years later, 1927, he died. So Ghoul was rescued from the gallows by Washington's repeal of the death penalty in 1912. So he barely, he he missed that by the skin of his teeth. Yeah, it sounded like he had a, a ghoulish death, though. I mean, to, to get syphilis and then suffer insanity from it and then 
die. I mean, in a way, it was an appropriate ending. Yeah, his autopsy report doesn't sound like fun. I can tell you that right now. But there are many indications that Ghoul was a sociopath serial killer, but he's not listed as a serial killer. Because he was only convicted of killing one. And even though the police chief said, I can tie him to 40 or more, that information is circumstantial evidence at best. All of the criteria that serial killers follow, he's out of the box on that. So Bill and I talked quite a bit about that because I feel like he really does present a lot of the traits that law enforcement enforcement have put together when it comes to serial killer. According to a piece in insider.com, serial killers, they say, focus is entirely on themselves and the power they are able to assert over others. Check. They have a severe lack of empathy. Check. Smooth talking, but insincere. Egocentric and grandiose. Lack of remorse or guilt. Deceitful and manipulative. Impulsive with shallow emotions. Lack of responsibility. And then it says early behavior problems, which obviously we don't know what he was like. So what do you think? Sociopath? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. You think so? I think, well, we've talked about the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath. And I feel like he he falls under the sociopath path. I don't know exactly why. I'm just intuitively it feels that way. Well, I'm going to give you a third option. Okay. I think he had narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, that sounds about right. So I was I was curious about this because there was something about it that didn't feel sociopathic to me. Mm-hmm. Like he had reasoning, like good reasoning behind kind of everything he did. I mean, it was evil, but it wasn't without reason. And so I was looking at psychology today and they actually have an article specifically talking about what is the difference between a narcissist and a sociopath. They overlap so much. And they say, while sociopaths qualify as narcissists, not all narcissists are sociopaths. Mm. So they are both charismatic, intelligent, charming. They can be really successful. They can also be controlling, selfish, disingenuous, dishonest. That's both. That could be a sociopath or a narcissist. Obviously, Billy Gould fills all of those buckets. But here's here's where we talk about the differences, what drives them. That's the main distinction. Sociopaths are cunning and manipulative. Their ego is always at stake. In fact, they don't really have any personality at all because all they do is mimic what other people want to see in them in order for them to get what they want. So they're so good. They're like the ultimate con artists. They can become any persona that fits their needs in that moment. So they're a little bit harder to spot because they're so good at putting on this fake persona. And this is the sociopath, to, This is right? the sociopath. Yeah, this is, I think Billy Ghoul is right here. But they don't brag. Oh. Their conversations will center on you instead of themselves. Mm. They want to get to know you. They want to know what you want, what you're looking for, so they can fit that mold. So they can be the person that you want them to be so that they can get what they want. So the bragging is what really kind of threw me off that label of of sociopath because of all the bragging. They tend to be self-effacing, even apologetic. If it serves their goals, they, they will say whatever you want them to say. And if it's saying something negative about themselves, they'll do that. But that doesn't sound like Billy Gould. No, it doesn't. So this is where we talk about the narcissist. Narcissists will also work really hard to achieve their success, fame, perfection. But where sociopaths will try to exploit other people, swindle other people, narcissists are more interested in what you think of them. 
They want your admiration. They want you to think they're amazing. And, and that's, that's the, bragging. the bragging. Yes. That's where the bragging comes in. And they're also more likely to be dependent or codependent on other people. Because, again, they have that need for validation, for approval. They have that need to be the greatest at whatever it is, the greatest serial killer, whatever it is. And so that's why they bring so many people into their circle and they brag and all of these things that Billy Gould did that Mm -hmm. doesn't really fit the mold in my mind of a sociopath. Ding, 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 ding. I mean, the bragging was just so prevalent in everything I read. He just had to share. And part of it, it sounds like he drank a lot, too, which I think, you know, loose lips sink ships, as they say. But but drinking doesn't make you a different person. It just brings out your original personality. Yes. But I think that when people drink, they say more than they should. Right. So but I just mean like if he's not naturally prone to bragging, drinking mm-hmm. is not going to make him brag. Yeah. It sounds like he bragged like all the time, except yeah. for when he was trying to entice people to do what he wanted. And also his like he had that persona of wanting to appear like this hero to the working man while at the same time he is killing them you know, in in droves, allegedly. So, yeah, I think that I love that uh, narcissistic uh, sociopath. I think that fits him to a T. Now, there is a school of thought that because the detective work on this case was outsourced to that company and was paid for by local businessmen who were against unions. Uh, Ah, money talks. Yeah, and that he might have gotten, you know, a raw deal and it was a smear campaign. And, you know, they're looking at it as, was he a victim of a smear campaign in their ongoing effort to bust unions, getting rid of him? But what's also interesting is after Billy was arrested in February of 1910, there was one floater. And they believed that he was in there for four or five years till his body floated up. So it all ended. Well, that's a pretty good indicator. Yeah, I would say <laughs> so, too. So an interesting thing, though, at the tavern, Billy's Bar and Grill, that's in Aberdeen. There's been stories of the notorious serial killer haunting the place. No, was it named after Billy Ghoul? Yeah, it was named oh, after Billy wow. Ghoul. According to ghostandghouls.com, long after his trial and ultimate death, Billy, as well as some of the prostitutes and sailors who once graced the premises, seem less than eager to move on from this world. And employees have reported glasses flying from the shelves, and a regional paranormal research group was able to record a faint but noticeable voice call out. So, Kim, what are you working on? Well, I actually have a special Deepish Thoughts that we're going to release in honor of Halloween and the election. Okay, okay. What do a Washington ghost town and the current president have in common? They're both connected with our coming Deepish Thoughts. It's called the Trump of Monte Cristo. (laughs) Oh, great, Kim. Can't wait. Before we close out, I wanted again to thank Bill Lindstrom. Keep an eye out for his new book, Working Title in Progress, Admiral of the Floater Fleet, The Mystery of Billy Gould, Allegedly One of America's Most Prolific Killers. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs> 